welcome to What the Heck is Resilience Anyway? I'm Julie. I'm Connor. And today we have an interview with uh, Chris Helzer of the Nature Conservancy in Nebraska. Chris Helzer is the Director of Science for Nature Conservancy here in Nebraska. The Nature Conservancy is an environmental nonprofit non working across the world in 79 countries with 125 million protected acres under their belt and with the help of over 400 employed scientists, just like Mr. Helzer. Mr. Helzer runs a fantastic blog, The Prairie Ecologist, and is an avid photographer of all things prairies. We highly recommend everyone check out his beautiful photographs after this interview. But uh, yeah, so thank you for being here with us. Great to be here. Yeah. Do you want to? Yeah, we really appreciate you coming here and taking your time to speak with us. Yeah. Driving all the way into Lincoln. Yeah. <laughs> Long drive. Yeah. So Julie and I, you know, we're very much on an academic track. You know, we're grad students. We do a lot of work related to uh, resilience. So one thing that we wanted to bring you in here today is to talk about resilience, the topic of this podcast, of course, mm -hmm. uh, in the context of people out there, boots on the ground, working in sort of a more pragmatic sense yeah. as opposed to the constant uh, abstract sense that Julie and I and a lot of the work we do is related to. Sure. And this podcast, we try really hard to tie it into some of that pragmatic stuff, but it's really helpful to bring people in who are taking resilience and applying it in a uh, boots on the ground fashion, Absolutely. managing land. Um, so can you just talk to us about, you know, re real briefly, what you do that's re related to topics like ecological resilience. Just a brief little bit about what you do. Sure. So I've been with the Nature Conservancy for about 23 years, and I started working on the prairies a few years before that um, when I was an undergrad. And from the beginning with prairies, resilience, even though it's not always called that, mm -hmm. is a huge part of what we talk about because Prairies are one of those ecosystems that is always under stress. Um, there are disturbances that happen all the time. It, it, it depends upon on, on disturbances, right? right? If, if prairies don't burn, they turn into something else, for example. Um, and a lot of my work when I started was land management. I was the land steward for the Nature Conservancy. I was restoring land. I was managing land and trying to maintain... Again, we didn't call it the resilience of the sites at the time, but that's really what we were doing is right, trying to sure. make, make sure that we had the diversity of species, the size and connectivity that we needed for the for the population to be viable over the long term. Over time, I moved. I was still doing land management, but I moved more and more into a science role, trying to think at a larger scale across the state or think, <clears throat> excuse me, more about research on our, on our sites and data collection evaluation. And then now my job is tangentially related to the management side. I'm an advisor for our land management restoration work. And most of my job is science and outreach. Mm -hmm. So I am conducting research I'm evaluating our sites, um, testing the effectiveness of the restoration and management strategies we do, and then a lot of outreach. So yeah. things like this and trying to share what we're learning on our sites with other people. Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you were saying about how even if you were using resilience in your day-to-day -day life and you're, you know, ever, you know, everyone was at these sites, it wasn't called ecological resilience. So that leads me to question, when did you first learn about the term ecological resilience and what does it mean to you and, you know, how has that informed this work? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I heard about things like state and transition models. Sure. Uh, boy, I don't remember when, but a long time ago. Uh, 
and that I, I enjoyed those because it, it made sense to me. It was a it was a different way of thinking about ecological succession, which is what I was taught, mm-hmm. which is such a linear process, and it's helpful in terms of getting people to think about how ecosystems change. But it you know it's so simplistic that it doesn't fit reality, especially with something like a prairie that doesn't have like a climax state that you're moving toward. Sure. Um, and it was especially for, especially frustrating because uh, the climax state you usually talk about in examples is a forest. Yeah. That's exactly what we don't want with with prairies. You know, our <laughs> climax state, and if you want to call it that, which is not what we should call it, is is grass. But it's a mid successional state if you look at succession on a linear in a linear way. So anyway, but we, I definitely heard about state and transition models and, and saw how people were trying to apply that to different systems, and I started to think about that with prairies. But I don't think I heard about ecological resilience as a term until I met Craig Allen okay. when he came to the U- to UNL, University of Nebraska here. Um, and we started kind of talking about what we we're mutually interested in. And he kind of introduced me to the topic because, of course, he knows something about it. And I don't or I didn't at the time. So along those same lines, can you talk a little bit about the roles of the disturbances of fire and grazing in prairie ecosystems? I think that a lot of people, especially like me, that aren't raised in, you know, ecosystems that require fire to sort of keep the keep the state that is considered ideal, consider it a bad disturbance, quote unquote bad, or, you know, grazing, sure. particularly with cattle is very, we see it as very man-made because we don't have that sort of bison system anymore. So yeah, uh, boy, there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start with, I think what, what you said is that people, I think, have an idea that ecosystems and, and prairies are part of that are sort of best if they just are left to their own devices, right? If we could just back away, these things would work fine. Nature has its own balancing system. But with prairies, especially in North America, if you think about their history, at the end of the last ice age, part of the country we're in now shifted from, you know, cold snow glaciers to more of a spruce forest, wooded area, and then eventually moved into a prairie. And during that entire process, people were here. And so when prairies that we have today first formed, there were people on the landscape, intimately involved with the landscape. And one of the reasons that we got prairies in the first place was because of human activity. So the intentional burning, for example, that indigenous people did in this part of the world helped push ecosystems into grassland out out of a woodland system. And then that burning helped keep them there once they were there. So the idea of separating fire especially from people doesn't make any sense um there are lightning strikes that cause fires of course but that's probably not it's almost surely not what the major source of fires were historically so the first thing i think people need to understand is you have sort of get out of this idea that that people managing prairies is somehow an unnatural thing because it's just it is it isn't natural or unnatural it just is that's how prairies exist um and then the grazing side of that is tightly connected because grazing and fire are connected. And one of the reasons indigenous people used fire was to to burn prairies as a way to make them nice and lush and green because they knew that that would attract bison, for example, which was the major a major food source for plains uh, people. And they used that to their advantage so that they could predict where they could hunt the next year, right? Um, and then from an ecological standpoint, what was happening was that you would have a fire that would run through that would help keep trees out of prairie. That's one of the major reasons that fire and prairies work well together. 
It would remove all the thatch and the dead vegetation above ground and let light hit the soil to warm it up faster, to allow growth to happen sooner in the spring, to allow plants to grow bigger because they had a slightly larger or longer season. Mm. Um, all these ecological benefits from the fire standpoint. And then as soon as that would burn, the large grazers would come in and, and start grazing it down. And so rarely would you have a an area of prairie that burned and they just got allowed to grow really tall because there's animals that were gonna take advantage of that. And when that grazing comes in, you know, imagine a horde of bison descending on an area and starting to graze it. They're grazing the plants right down to the ground. They're stomping around. It's a, it's a really messy system. The plants are impacted heavily, but not all of them because bison and cattle today um, have favorite plants and they have plants they don't like to eat. And so you have this, this mixture of plant heights and densities across the sites, um, which creates habitat. Right. So fire and grazing combined create growing conditions for uh, plants that are important. And then when those disturbances move away and you start to have recovery, those plants get a chance to recover in the plant community changes over time. So it's and, kind of almost like a heterogeneity across patches. Almost. Right. It's like where one fire is burned, you're going to have maybe a little bit similar stage of, of plant growth. But then as that. Right. So you have these, you have these sort landscape. of these shifting, the shifting mosaic is what we talk about right. a lot of, of these different habitat patches that'll go through a fire uh, and then grazing and then a recovery phase to the point where it's nice and tall and thick again and ready to burn again. And then it would get burned and that cycle starts over. And you have this sort of moving windows, these these moving windows of habitat. So the second thing that that's important there is so with that it does affect the plants and the plant community, but it also affects the habitat for all the animals that live there because there are different animals that are going to be looking for kind of the short, sparse habitat that comes after a fire. And you're going to have some animals that really want the, the more dense, tall vegetation, and then you have some that really thrive in that intermediate recovery stage. Yeah. And so by having a shifting mosaic of all those things happening in a really messy way around the landscape, animals tend to be able to move and find the habitat that they need if they're not happy where they are. And the plants may not be happy this year, but they'll, if they can hang on, they'll be happy next year or the year after. And as long as they have the ability to thrive and flourish every few years, they're also okay. Interesting how it's the very definition of a social ecological system. Yeah, right. The human influences, it evolved with the system, so it's... Co-evolved system. Yes, co-evolved system. Right. And, and again, if you, if you just let us prairie sit, if, if, if humans for some reason just backed off and went away, most prairies would turn into a shrubland or a woodland or something that they're not now. Sure. So that disturbance is really an integral part of prairies themselves or grasslands. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, we all think of like, there's man and there's nature. It's nature's this untouched thing. And if we if we left everything alone, everything would be fine. But this is a really good example of where that's just not true. Right. I don't I don't know that it's true anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, anyway. Yeah. But especially in prairies, it's not true. That's fantastic. It's also very interesting from the context of clemency and succession, where we see that gradual move up to from what we think of as weeds, but a lot of these uh, plants that first colonize an area that's been disturbed by fire or something. And move up the chain from these shorter plants to larger growth, finally woody vegetation. And uh, that system doesn't really contemplate the idea of constant disturbance, constantly reforming that patch of land. So it's very interesting. Well, and I think it, at least for students, and I remember thinking this way too, when you first are introduced to it, 
it, does, it doesn't just describe a system. It also shows what a system should be, or that's the impression that I got, at least. And I think a lot of people have that, you know, the goal of our management, the goal of our interaction with nature is to get it to that climax state where it can be stable and, and productive. And again, and usually most of the examples that I saw, that was the climax forest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. And so it's not just that it doesn't work to describe prairie systems very well, but it also makes prairies sound like they're not what we want, right? They're just like, it's, which, which is funny because it's similar to the way people see prairies anyway, which is if you want to go someplace cool on vacation, prairies are what you have to get through to get to that, yeah. mm -hmm. which is similar to the whole succession thing, right? You, right. you got to make your way through the prairie stages to get to the cool forest parts at the yeah. end. It's a bunch of weeds yeah. or, or it's just, you know, fields that haven't been turned into agriculture yet. You know, we should right. utilize this for more useful purposes or something yeah, like which that. may be why prairie people have this inferiority complex <laughs> we feel like we're always defending ourselves that oh, no prairies are fine that they're okay the way they are if you just spent time in them you'd understand <laughs> um and one of the things i saw that you guys were doing on the the tnc's website is trying to take smaller sort of fragment prairies you know little patches and connect them to one another through restoring you know, older agricultural fields that you guys have acquired to back to a, a prairie status. Right. You know, is that, can you talk a little bit about that and the way that, you know, you need a little bit of that connectivity for resilience in these systems? Sure. So, I mean, to set the stage a little bit, I, when I think about prairies and resilience, I think species diversity and kind of the size and connectivity are the two things that we focus on as managers. So, Species diversity, when we're doing the kind of management we were talking about before, about the shifting mosaic of this, this fire grazing mosaic, that helps maintain high species diversity. But the connectivity and size of the habitats is something that uh, we can't deal with through management. That's a restoration question, a restoration issue. And so when we have these small, isolated patches of grassland, you can have really nice species diversity, but they're not going to be resilient sites because you just don't have populations that are big enough, for example, to withstand something happening, you know, if you so if a big tornado or something, you know, just some tornado, crazy disturbance fire, came through, yeah, it, diseases. Would, it could kill all of them, the whole right. population that's there. So and then your species is gone, and 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 then there's not a way for it to recolonize because mm -hmm. you're surrounded by crop field on all sides. So gotcha. there's there's big issues associated with that. So from a restoration standpoint, what we're trying to do is we're trying to to both restore the connectivity and size of some areas that we have control over, but more importantly, we're trying to to do a proof of concept and work out the methods and see how well it works and then hope that we can inspire other people to do it in other places so that we're having a much bigger impact than what we're doing on our own sites. Mm -hmm. um, so what we start with is these small remnant prairies surrounded by cornfields. Um, they're isolated from each other and our goal is to make them larger and more connected so that they function as a larger, more connected system that can hold larger populations. Populations can move across there. When we manage with our shifting mosaic, those animals can move across the landscape and find the patches that they want. Maybe get some bigger species, things that need a little bit more range. Right, you can bring in something like a prairie chicken that you wouldn't gotcha. have on a 40 acre isolated prairie, for example. Also, it makes it easier to do fire and grazing management because there's a certain scale at which you need to work when you're doing that kind of work. Grazing a five acre prairie is really hard. There's just not much room for cows to do anything, for example, if you're using cattle. And if you're burning an area like that, it's really hard to burn a small piece of it mm -hmm. because it's just logistically difficult. And if you burn a, a whole, the entirety of a five acre prairie, you can wipe out 
species just by doing sure. something that ordinarily would be a really good management tool. So when we do our restoration work, we start with the idea that we want to use the most diverse seed mixes we can. So our when we harvest seed, we harvest our own seed. We try to get seed mixes of 150 to 200 species of plants, which is always fun to talk about because a lot of people wouldn't think about that many plant species in a prairie in the first mm -hmm. place, let alone one that you're trying to build from scratch. Um, so we try to use as many species as we can. We you know, plant that out on these pieces of cornfield that are adjacent to or near or surrounding our, our little remnants, let those establish. And then we want to move beyond just sort of making big flower gardens because one of the early tests is, did those plant species that we planted turn into plants and establish themselves? And um, you know, did we get the diversity initially that we wanted? But then we need to see, okay, A, is that diversity going to last over a long period of time? You know, is it showing resilience? Is it going to maintain its diversity over time? But then bigger question is, I think, are those replanted areas functioning in the way we want from an animal's perspective? You know, are the animals that were isolated before and, and living in that tiny little remnant now able to move out and expand into and through those restored habitats? Are we, are we reestablishing that connectivity? So we've done a lot of work trying to look at things like ants and grasshoppers and small mammals and uh, bees. Those are the four that we've looked at so far and just doing really simple inventories, you know, right. look at the species that are in the little isolated remnants, look at the species that are in the restored habitats. Are we missing anything? Is everybody, is everybody there? Um, and so far the answer has been good. I mean, okay. yes, awesome. the, the species that we're looking for seem to be there. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know, are they reproducing successfully? Are they using these areas as passages and you know, all those sorts of things? But at least the fact that they're in the habitats that we're creating gives us a lot of hope that we're, doing something successful. Do you find there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem in some cases where you've restored this prairie, but some of these species that you want to move in there won't move in until other species that need to move in there? <laughs> sure, sure. In. Or or they're not there in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, from an animal's perspective, we're not, we're not, we're putting in seeds in a prairie for plants, but we're not at this point introducing animals. And so then you have to rely on these animals to be able to find your habitat. Which means connectivity again. Which you means have to have connectivity. Other prairies nearby, and, right. and so it gets easier with time as you have more prairies. Maybe, Although but. it's it's inspiring to me how little we see those species have a tr have a hard time finding their way in. So as an example, there's a there's a bee called the blue sage bee. It feeds only on blue sage or pitcher sage salvia. Um, so it's a it's one of those rare bees that's a very tight specialist, and we can put pitcher sage or blue sage into our prairie restoration in the middle of corn country with no other prairies with pitcher sage anywhere nearby. And the first year that that flower blooms, the bee shows up. That's wow. insane. And how that bee finds <laughs> I that, I have no they idea. They have such small ranges too. Bees really like relative to, you yeah. know, something like a coyote or something. Right. Yeah. They're not going miles and miles no. and miles. Um, but the fact that those, those, tight relationships can reform on a landscape that you look at and say, this is a fragmented landscape that's, it's all messed up. And yet when we give them the opportunity, those relationships reform. That's to me, that's really inspiring. And it shows yeah. that it's worth doing the things that we're doing. Yeah. There's still some resilience in the system. It yeah. just needs yeah. some assistance. So how do sort of common prairie species that you see really frequently, how do they exhibit resilient behavior? I mean, one example, I guess you just gave is that blue sage bee where you know, despite uh, a lot of disturbance and it's able to come back quite quickly, but. 
Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think we can talk about plants when you talk about animals. Mm -hmm. So from a plant standpoint, most grassland plants are really well adapted, for example, to fire, which isn't surprising since yeah. that's what maintains prairies yeah. and grazing. And if you look at perennial grasses, as an example, um, you know, when a fire comes across, it burns up all the leaves above ground, but grasses grow from the base anyway. Uh, they're not like trees that have to bud out from wherever the end of their their last year's growth was and then they start another year. Um, grasses start from the ground anyway. So taking off everything above ground doesn't really have a huge impact on them because they just start growing again. If you do it during the middle of the growing season, you're losing the energy that you put into that year's production. And that's an impact. But even that is not a huge deal. And most fires happen you know, toward the end of the season or the beginning of the season when they haven't invested as much or they put a lot of that energy back. Anyway, point is that the growth that happens happens from these little buds that are at the base of the plant and they're either right at the surface or maybe below the surface of the ground. So they're protected from fire and they've got this basically this people, scientists that the study it call it a bud bank okay. that as long as the plant has enough energy to keep producing buds, they can they can put those buds into use to create new tillers anytime they want to. And so that grass can get grazed off. And let's say it has a tiller going up, a stem with a leaf on it. If that gets grazed down to the ground, the plant can decide whether to start that one growing again, or sometimes abandon it and just start a new one from the next, the next bud over. And so what I think is fascinating about that is you think about these, these perennial plants, and it's not just grass, but really any perennial plant in the prairie has that bud bank at the base of the plant, which essentially makes it immortal. Right. Okay. I mean, if as long as that bud bank is there, and right. as long as something doesn't literally dig it out of the ground sure. or it doesn't run out of enough energy uh, through repeated disturbances to just create new buds, it can live forever. There's no reason that plant can't be here a thousand years from now or two thousand years from now, which is amazing yeah. to think about. Yeah. And so then you look at the prairies that we have and you start thinking about how old are some of those plants. Mm -hmm. Right. And some of the colonial plants that spread through rhizomes. Uh, could be acres and acres and acres in size, which means that if if one part of them dies, gets grazed too much or gets dug up or whatever, that organism exists in a large enough area that it's still there, which is, that's that's res resilience, right? That's oh, exactly resilience. Oh, absolutely. So an individual plant and the base of the plant has resilience because it can take that disturbance and keep coming back. Um, and then the, the larger these colonial plants or populations, if you want to look at it at that standpoint, have, have resilience for the same reason, because they're big enough and all, all the connected together. So that's from the plant standpoint. Um, actually, that's perennial plants. Annual plants, <laughs> I won't get into it too much, but you know the way that they persist is through the seed bank, right? So they have to produce, when they when they get the chance to grow, they have one year to grow from, from seed to, to, to flower to producing more seed. And then those seeds fall and sit there in the ground until they get the opportunity to do it again. Um, and that might be next year, or it might be 10 or 15 years from now, but they exist as a population because they can wait until their opportunity arises and then they can go quickly and burst into existence again. Um, then from an animal standpoint, you know, some animals can hunker down and stay in one place if, if things aren't going well, but a lot of them, because they're mobile, can move around and find places to go. And so again, as long as we're providing connectivity, something like that blue sage bee we talked about earlier can find the very specific food source that it needs 
by going across the landscape. And in that case, going across a landscape that doesn't seem friendly to us, you know, let alone something that just has to go across the prairie to find another another example of that population. Yeah. But the mobility of animals really helps them maintain their resilience as long as we facilitate it with a landscape that's friendly to that kind of movement. Again, sure. more justification for that restoration and connectivity yeah. of prairies for you guys. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that part of your job is focused on outreach, uh, both for for TNC properties, I assume, but also maybe prairies in general. So would you mind talking yeah. a little bit about your doing outreach for prairies? Yeah, sure. Um, so we talked about it before that, you know, prairie people have this inferiority complex, I think, mm-hmm. um, because I think most people don't see prairies as something that is valuable or at least not something that is as aesthetically beautiful or attractive or something worth visiting or caring about. Uh, you can see my inferiority complex coming out. <laughs> um, but I but I think it's generally true. I mean, people who don't grow up on a ranch, for example, and see prairies every day and see how they change and see all those sorts of things. When you see it from a distance, it just looks like a bunch of grass. And usually when you think about a prairie, you think about a big flat area of grass. And who cares about that? Mm-hmm. Um, not many people. So one of my big jobs, I think, is to get people to see prairies in different ways and see them in ways that are not big, big areas of flat grass. So the things that I think make prairies intriguing are scale. You know, if you if you go out to the Nebraska Sandhills, for example, you stand in the, million, in the middle of 12 million acres of grassland with hills all around you. You feel like you're in the middle of this huge open space, uh, which for some people is exciting and for some people is really scary. But either way, right. Me coming from a very, uh, you know, deciduous forest in the American South, like the wide open plains still freaks me out a little bit. Sure, you feel exposed. Yeah, I feel very exposed. It's like wild animal in the savannah kind of thing where I'm not You can see everything, but they can see you. Yes, Right, but but either way, that elicits an emotion, Mm -hmm. right? And it's a strong emotion for most people. So I think that scale is really helpful in terms of getting people to see prairies as something that is worth an emotion, at least. Right. Uh, And then I think the other things that are interesting are the complexity and the dynamics of prairies. So one of the fun things about prairies is that they're they're different every day, right? No matter when you go out to a prairie, there's going to be something there that's different than what you saw the day before, whether it's flowers that have opened up that weren't there Um, you know, insect species that are emerging and and becoming active that weren't there before, or just the fact that, you know, a plant was there yesterday and today it's it's been grazed off or, or something's happened to it or, you know, all these things are changing. And so that dynamics, that dynamism, the changeability of prairies, I think is really fascinating and gives people something to watch and a different and a reason to go back out. And then that links to the complexity. And one of the things I love to talk about and show people is you know, like the blue sage bee again, you know, these little tiny stories of a species that you wouldn't think of, you look at it, it just looks like a little bee. Um, but it has this whole life history, it's got this whole life strategy to it, and it relies on other species. So sometimes it's a very tight relationship, like the blue sage bee and its host plant. But a lot of times it's much more complex where you have predators that are relying on, you know, having a variety of different species available to them so that there's always something to eat. Or with bees, again, most bees have to rely on plant diversity because they have to have a lot of different kinds of plant species that are in bloom, that are in bloom all season long. So there's always that consistency, which, again, ties back to resilience, right? Mm -hmm. That plant diversity 
provides redundancy of food sources over the season so that the bees always have something to eat so that the bee populations remain strong. And as the bee populations remain strong, that helps the plant populations because they need the pollinators. And I don't see why people don't like prairies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, those feedback loops are incredible and it's hard to see another system where they're as obvious. Yeah. Like that's a very, very clear but, example. So with outreach, you know, the biggest step I think is getting people over that first hump of thinking the prairies are boring and not worth going to visit. If, if sure. we can get people out there, especially with a guide, right? If I can take you out to a prairie, mm-hmm. I can I can make you excited about a prairie in 10 minutes. But most people aren't going to make that step by themselves. And so that gets to where I use photography. And so my blog or just any opportunity I have to show people photos is a great way to give them something that they say, oh, that that's not what I expected or that's really pretty. I'd like to go see that. Perfect. Do yeah, that. Come absolutely. see it. Um, and then hopefully when they get there, their first experience is positive and they'll want to come back. Yeah. So that's that's the outreach about prairies in general. And then you also mentioned, I mean, outreach in terms of the, the prairie work that we do, you know, trying to learn what we can about the shifting mosaic or about the way we restore prairies, take those lessons. And I take those out to other land managers, you know, across the country, really, and try to share what we're learning. Yeah, I was going to ask if you guys had branched into sort of policy at any level or is, you know, is that, where does that fit into this as well? I mean, yes, definitely. The Nature Conservancy as a whole definitely does policy work. We have government relations people and others that do policy. I don't so much, but I'm, I serve as a resource for them. So they'll reach down to us, reach down, reach over (laughs) to us and say, hey, we're going to have this big policy discussion about grasslands. You know, what's, what's the science say about this or you know, what would you like to see? What are the big issues that you see that are affecting prairie conservation? And how do we deal with that? That's awesome. Yeah, but back to your blog. I mean, that's, I actually found the blog before I had heard, you know, your name and from, you know, students who worked with you. So that's really an incredible resource, the, the prairie ecologist. Um, and one project you guys did was the one square meter of prairie. This sort of combines what you were talking about with scale and sort of showing people how beautiful prairies are, but not at first glance, you really have to get into it. Can you talk a little bit about this and that photography project? Yeah. So my idea was, well, first of all, the square meter project came about because I was trying to fill space in the blog. Give me something to write about because I try to post twice a week, which is a lot. And I don't usually run out of things to talk about, but it's always nice to have more. So I started this idea that I went out to a small prairie on the edge of Aurora, Nebraska, where I live. It's a skinny little strip of prairie with trees on one side and a mowed grass area with a dog pound on the other side. It's it's nothing special. There's little bits of prairie like this all over the country, all over the world. And I went out in that little prairie and I took four flags and I stuck them down on the ground to mark out one square meter of land and then decided I was going to try to take as many pictures as I could over a year within that one little tiny plot with the idea of, I hoped, my initial thought was just to show people how much there is in a prairie by focusing on a tiny little bit and then hoping people would extrapolate from there. And it turned out well that way. I mean, I, I definitely found a lot of things to take pictures of. I found 113 different species of plants and animals through wow. the year in that one little tiny square, which, you know, not all of them were living there, but they passed through and they, right. I was able to capture them. And it's not some, as we talked about, quote unquote, pristine, you know, it's, no, on it's the just a town, regular piece like, of prairie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was that was successful right off the bat was I was able to, to show people and I, and I posted, you know, updates through the year. Um, you know, hey, here's what I saw in June. Here's a bunch of pictures from June, that kind of thing. I think what else it, it did was it helped me see prairies differently because when I normally when I photograph prairies, I wander around a lot. 
I'm always moving. I'm looking for the next thing. I'm following the light. I'm looking at something that's interesting across the way and I go over to see what it is. This project, I had to sit really still and I had to just stare at this little tiny space and try to find something interesting to take a picture of. And it was good for me artistically. It was good for me emotionally. Um, just to kind of sit and be quiet and stare at something until something emerged to take a picture, either either literally because it you know popped out around the, the backside of a plant that I saw it, or more than that, more often it was just like if I looked long enough, all of a sudden I would see something that was sitting still that I hadn't noticed before, right? And I got to watch spiders hunt um, several times. I got to take a picture of a spider, take a picture of its prey, and then take a picture of the spider holding the prey just a minute later, right? And I get to watch that whole process happen, which I, when you when you walk through a prairie, you're, you're too high up, you don't notice things, you're you're, knocking and you're it all moving, off, yeah. right? It's knocking off in front of you. Um, so that was really fascinating for me, was to have the time to spend. And what I'm hoping is that this project is going to, and it already has, again, help people see prairies in a little different way. Wow, I didn't know that was there, and by, by photographing things that are really common. I mean, most of the species, all the species I found are going to be either be in a prairie that someone is close to, or there's something very similar to it that'll be in a prairie that someone's close to, which I hope makes them feel more accessible. Like if I can do this, it's not that you have to go out with your camera and sit in front of a little square meter, but you can walk out in any prairie. And if you just pay attention, you'll see what I'm seeing. Yeah. And those things are beautiful there. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's, there's parallels to snorkeling or scuba diving in the ocean where if you're on the boat or you're on the shore and you look out, all you see is water. And in a prairie, all you see is grass, right? But if you dip below the surface, so to speak, in a prairie and you take your time and you, and you really start looking closely, there's all this stuff in there that you wouldn't have thought was there, wouldn't have noticed, wouldn't have cared about. And so if I can get people to sort of put their their snorkel on and their mask on and and dip down into the water a little bit and with prairies and look more deeply, I think they'll be excited about what they found. And then I'm I'm successful, right? Yeah. I've changed their perspective about what grasslands look like. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of years ago, we had a big eclipse here in Nebraska, yeah. which was very photogenic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, know I was out in the sand hills watching the shadow come across all the nice. grass. It was nice. yeah. one of the coolest moments of my life, I think, yeah. watching yeah. all that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so did, were you able to take advantage of that opportunity to try and you know, show people what a prairie ecosystem looks like? And Yeah, we had an, we had an event at one of our prairies. Um, we were up in the hills also, kind of at a nice vantage point so we could see things coming across the surface of the ground. Uh, and then we had a huge turnout. I don't remember how many people we had now. I, I want to say 100 or 150 people, you know, sitting around in the prairie. It was cool because everybody brought their blankets and their lawn chairs and we just sort of everybody spread out like it was having a great big picnic. <laughs> um, and it was neat to see the eclipse, but it was also really neat because a lot of those people really hadn't spent a lot of time in a prairie. So it was a great event to get people to see a prairie, uh, as a, as a side effect of, of, you know, watching the eclipse. And yeah, it was fun to photograph it. Um, I didn't, because I was working on the event, I didn't get to do things like, you know, the science side of it where we were. Right you know, monitoring bird sounds and what happened with that or animal mm-hmm. sounds or, you know, any of the sort of, you know, functional or ecological responses to it. I just, it was more of an aesthetic for me, just watching the light change and how people were, you know, taking that in and that sort of thing was what mm-hmm. I did. Sure. But I was, I felt very fortunate to be there in the middle of prairie um, on, a, on a mostly cloudless day for us, which yeah. out, worked out really well too. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. 
That's awesome. I hear you've recently had some uh, online popularity with a parody field guide that oh, you man. made. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about this project and uh, uh, what the response has been? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, had... I saw it well before you told me about it, so I thought it was That's, very fun. Yeah, I, was, I was impressed. Yeah, I've had this idea for a long time that you, you look at these field guides for wildflowers, for example, and they're full of these very sharp, very close-up images of flowers. And it is really helpful. If you're walking through a prairie and you see something, you pull out your field guide, you can find something that looks like it. And, okay, that's what it is. Um, but I, I've always thought that wouldn't it be funny if you made a field guide for people who were driving down the road because when they see a flower, it's not this close-up, clear, crisp view. It's this blurry smear of color as you right. go by, right? Which I just thought would be really funny to have a field guide full of smeared, blurry, colored photos and then label them and treat it exactly like a field guide yeah, all the and take it seriously, yep, except yep. that the photos are these smeary colors. Um, and I just, you know, I thought, well, it's a funny idea. Somebody will probably do it someday. That'll be great. And then over the holiday break, this year, uh, my wife and I were just, we, we were just in the house by ourselves for several days, decided to catch up on some TV and movies that we hadn't watched. And she was knitting and I needed something to do. And so I started messing around with Photoshop and I took some pictures and, uh, you know, started smearing them with Photoshop techniques to see what they look like. And I liked it. I thought, well, all right. And then my first choice was, I was just going to do a blog post and have two or three pictures and say, hey, isn't this a funny concept? Wouldn't it be funny if somebody made a field guide? And then I thought, you know what? I'll just make the field guide. So I spent another several hours, created a field guide with, I don't know, 20 or 25 plants in it. Um, and then put it, out, put it out as a PDF, put it out on the blog and thought, yeah, there's something that made me laugh. That's, that was great. And it just ballooned into craziness. Uh, I had... I had so many comments coming in from people who appreciated it. It got picked up on a, on a big Facebook meme it site. Did, yes, the ecology and, memes went crazy. And that went crazy. And then I started getting contacts from people. I had a, a modern art online magazine called Colossal mm -hmm. that contacted me and said, hey, can, <laughs> can we write a story about this? I was yeah. like, yes. <laughs> um, Atlas Obscura. Yeah, that's uh, a huge. Big, a big travel site online. Yeah. Uh, did the same thing and they wrote an article about it. And it's it's one of those things where I'm really glad for, for the attention because it, it at the least it gets people to see prairies and think about prairies in some context just for a minute, right? Yeah, Even if they're laughing yeah. about it, yeah. it brings it to mind, yeah. which is something that probably doesn't happen very often for most people. So that was a success. Yeah. But I was telling other people that, you know, if I knew ahead of time that this was going to get that much attention, I would have added more into it to talk about prairies a little bit more. Although the response I got from somebody was like, yeah, you do that, but then it doesn't become funny. Yeah, it's got to be so a certain level. I don't know that it would have, you know, it's probably better that it just fun. happened accidentally and organically, but it's just been insane. And, and my blog is still getting, you know, three or four times the normal hits mm -hmm. a week and a half, two weeks later now. I mean, that's awesome thing because the rest of like all of your blog is such fantastic yeah, prairie information right. that it's... Hopefully somebody will come and they'll stick around and they'll look at other things. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, even if they don't, again, they thought about prairie wildflowers for just yeah. a minute and got a chuckle out of it, enjoyed it, and yeah. then hopefully they'll think about it again sometime. That's amazing. Yeah. That's it's so, it's so hard. It It's so hard to predict as a blog writer... Uh, 
what people are going to go for and what people are going to appreciate. I'll, I'll write a post that I think is great, you know, and I'll get just no feedback. And then I'll write something else and a whole bunch of people will respond to it. Well, we'll get into this big discussion about it. And I just, I never know. And this one just shocked me, but I'm glad it worked out. I love it. Well, we want to transition now, I think, to some questions that are more open-ended, just stuff that maybe you want to talk about or you're particularly interested in. So first off, uh, just what sort of upcoming work do you think you're most excited about or anything that you'd like to, to promote or talk about? Sure. Um, I think right now one of our big challenges with the shifting mosaic concept of management is to find ways that that can happen on private lands. Because mm -hmm. in most of the prairie landscape in North America, those grasslands are owned by somebody, you know, mm -hmm. not the government. So it's not public land, it's private land, which means that if conservation is gonna happen, it has to happen by private landowners. So one of our challenges is how do we translate these ideas we have into something that would make sense for a rancher, right? And, and that it has to make sense economically, but it also has to make sense culturally. And the cultural part is actually the trickier one. Mm -hmm. So as an example, one of the things we're running into is uh, patch burn grazing is a way to manage prairies using that fire and grazing connection we talked about earlier. We, you know, we, burn, we burn a portion of a prairie, cattle or bison or whatever the grazing animals are, they, they sort of move into that burned area, they graze it really hard, and then they stay on that grazed area and keep hitting it hard until we burn a different place the next year and then they shift over. We've created the shifting mosaic. Perfect, it's really easy to do, it's, it's beautiful to watch, but there are issues with that in terms of translating that onto a ranch. A, it relies on fire. And not every rancher in, and in Nebraska, very few ranchers at this point are interested in using fire on their ranch. And that, that number is growing. Scary. Yeah, that number is growing, but they don't have the they don't have the the expertise on it. They don't have the interest necessarily, um, and it can be difficult to do. And even for us, where fire is a priority, we we struggle to get fires done everywhere we want to every year. Weather things come up, equipment issues come up, whatever it is. Yeah, sure. So so fire can be difficult. So that's that's a stumbling block because patch burn grazing, as an example, relies on regular use of fire. But I think even beyond that, the the other stumbling block is. Um, this, this fear that ranchers have that by grazing, by burning and then grazing afterwards, A, that's gonna have an impact, especially in like the Nebraska Sandhills where you have these dry systems on sandy soils, you're worried about wind erosion and burning it all off down to bare ground in the first place is scary because they don't like to see bare ground in, in ranch country in the Sandhills because they're afraid it's gonna start to blow. Yeah, yeah. Even though there's a lot of data that shows that that's not what happens unless you do that either repeatedly or you have something else that disturbs it, sure. it's, it's more resilient than they think. Right, but it makes sense at first <laughs> But it's still something Sand, that, yeah. that looks scary. Um, so there's, there's the grazing after fire, but then that long-term grazing where you're really weakening those grasses that's the resource that ranchers rely on to feed their feed their animals to to make their money to to survive. And there's a lot of there, there's both a, a a fear of the productivity going down after that of, of the grasses, but even more there's this cultural issue that I mean I bring ranchers out to see the areas that we're managing right now, and I take them out to where the cows are actively grazing, and they have a visceral response. They, 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 you can see them clench. It's like, I am not comfortable with what you're doing to the land, right? Because it looks to them like everything they've been taught not to do. They, they've been taught, most of them, that when you graze a, a grass plant, you wanna take the top half of that plant maybe at the most. 
and then you leave it so that it recovers quickly and it doesn't injure the plant. So you can have consistent productivity of that grass plant. And what we're doing is very different than that because we're just grazing the crap out of it and taking it down to the ground. We're, we're stressing those plants to a great degree. We then give them two or three years to recover to get back to full strength. And, in, and while those are stressed on one side of the pasture, you walk over the other side of the pasture and you have areas that you know haven't been grazed for a few years. They're fully recovered. They're nice and tall and lush. And so we've got everything there. And we, we, we know as the people who do this all the time that everything's okay. Right, the grass plants are okay, the habitat's okay, the soil's not blowing away. Sure. But one of the things we need to do better in the next coming years is we need to be able to show ranchers that and get them comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. Not so that they'll do patch burn grazing necessarily, but because I want them to feel two things. One, one I want them to feel more comfortable with the resilience of the, the prairies that they're working with right? and understand that they can push them a little bit harder than maybe, maybe they think they can as long as they allow them to recover. So that's, that's one thing. And then the second thing is that in order to create the widest possible array of habitat conditions, we need them to be creating some short structure and grazing for an entire season in one place and making it short so that it goes through the weedy recovery phase to get to the tall stuff so that all the habitat conditions in between are covered. And with a lot of ranches now, uh, some people give ranchers a a black eye because they think they're just overgrazing all their pastures. The ranchers that do that don't last, right? Most ranchers are pretty conservative because they know that they have to have this grassland for a long time. And your livelihood shape. comes from your land. They're, it, you're they're depend land right. stewards, yeah. And they also see themselves as conservationists, right? Yeah, I mean, they're doing this not just for themselves. They Every rancher I've ever talked to has a greater good in mind mm -hmm. and they see themselves as part of that, that greater conservation mission. Yeah. But they tend to be so conservative that a lot of the habitat structure across the ranch is the same everywhere, right? If they're not grazing anything very hard and it all recovers very quickly, instead of having this, this spectrum from very short to very tall with a lot of weedy stuff in between, your, your spectrum is very short because it's all either tall or medium tall. And there are just, there are just species of plants and animals that don't respond well to that short to me or that tall to medium tall structure. So we've got some research projects going on, but more importantly, I'm trying to work with university extension and people that have credibility with ranchers, ranchers themselves, hopefully, and get them involved within in the research, get them involved in the demonstration, figure out what kind of field events we need to do. What do we need to do to get ranchers more comfortable with that wider range of conditions that they could have on the ranch without pushing them to say, oh, it's okay if you overgraze your ranch, because that's not the message. Yeah, right. Right. And from a resilience standpoint, sure. you talk about thresholds, right? Yeah. There's, when I, when I talk about resilience to people in grasslands. I use the ball and the bowl analogy that a lot of other people use too, right? And that you can, with different kinds of disturbances and stresses, the ball can move around inside that bowl, but it's still the same ball. It's still the same prairie. It has the same essential functions. But if you push it too far, it goes over the edge of that bowl and into a different one. It's crossed that threshold and now something different and probably not what we want. And so using that same analogy with ranchers, I want them to know that that bowl is really big you know, and it's got pretty steep sides at the edges. And so you can do a lot of different things to those prairies year to year. And as long as you allow them to recover, they're fine. They're very resilient from the individual species to the community level. They're very resilient. And I think if ranchers understood that, it would open up a much more, a much higher level of freedom for them to be imaginative and creative in the way they manage. And if we could describe, look, these are the kinds of habitat conditions that, that animals and plants want. Ranchers are going to want to create that if they can. 
because again, that's their mission. I mean, they see that conservation mission. I, did, I just feel like right now they feel constrained and not able to do it because they're afraid of the consequences. So my hope is that five or 10 years from now, we'll have a lot more ranchers more comfortable with the resilience of the systems that they're working with and, and, and feel more empowered to be creative and innovative yeah. in the way that they manage, which, because I think absolutely. ranchers know their land, they know their system, they can do some yeah, amazing best, things yeah, if absolutely. we let them just sort of let them loose to do it. Yeah, I think that's so much of our mission with this podcast too, is just trying to get the vocab of what you're talking about with resilience and that sort of ball in a cup, ball in a basin model so that, you know, when people like you go to speak to ranchers or to undergrads or to whoever about, you know, the sort of resilience and flexibility of the places that they're working, that vocab is a little more, pop, you know, popular or common. Yep. yep. No, I think that's great. So, can I get the message that you're, you know, your prairies are made of grass, not glass, right? <laughs> yes, I like that. I do like that. Except the only problem with that, of course, is that I don't want people to just think about grass. I want to think about wildflowers <laughs> and bees Fair and all that. Yeah. But, but it's still a really good, I like it's it. It's catchy. Yeah, it is catchy. Maybe I should be our slogan. <laughs> Copyright that quick. There you go. Um, how can sort of the general public and the public here in Nebraska get involved with the work that you do? Well, they can come out and see our prairies, first of all, and not just our prairies, but any prairies. Yeah. I don't, they don't have to be the Nature Conservancy. Um, but I, I think that would be the most important thing for me is if, if you're somebody that's listening to this and you don't have experience with prairies or you've never thought about prairies much, just go look, yeah. you know, yeah. go and, and go to some place like Spring Creek um, Audubon Center out uh, by Lincoln or, you know, our Platte River prairies on the Platte River. Go someplace where there's interpretive materials where you can learn when you get there so that you're not, you know, diving in sort of by yourself uh, because you may not understand or 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 see things that you that you recognize and then it's not going to be that interesting but if you go out with the first time with somebody who can explain it to you or at least go to a site that has signs up or you know here's what this is that'll help so that that would be my first thing but beyond that you know we have volunteer days um twice a month through most of the season people can get involved with that you can go to nature.org nebraska and there's volunteer opportunities there um, we have a citizen science event during the summer where we are uh, last year was the first one, but we're going to do this annually for as many years as we can, where we're looking at butterflies, especially regal fritillary, excuse me, regal fritillary butterflies and monarch butterflies. But regals are a, a prairie specialist butterfly. They're big. They, they look like monarchs, kind of, except they're spotty instead of stripey. Um, but they have the same kind of orange and black look. And they're a prairie specialist that's not doing very well across the country right now. And we have fairly strong populations, but ours haven't been very strong or as strong as we would like recently. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And so we're using people uh, from the public just to come out and help us walk transects and look for butterflies. It's easy. You don't have to identify a lot of things. You have to identify, is it a regal fertilary or a monarch or something else? Mm -hmm. We can teach you how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> and then we identify what plants are blooming in the same areas that we're seeing the butterflies to see if mm -hmm. that's changing. And that lets us evaluate our management and that their the management impacts on the butterflies and also just to see kind of what's happening year to year. So we would love to have people come out and join us on that. This year, it's going to be the last Saturday in, in June. Again, nature.org, Nebraska, you can go there and find when that when that gets posted, there'll be more information on that. And then, yeah, read the blog, read anything you can about prairies. When I when I got started with prairies, it was because one person came up to me, one of my friends came up and said, you ever think about prairies? 
And I said, no, not really. Because I was, you know, a freshman in college. I was, I wanted to be a forest ranger because that's what I thought I could do to be outside. Um, and once I started looking into it, I just, I never turned back. There's so much there that's so fascinating. You know, find the, the blog, I hope, provides people the resource to learn about mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But if, if we could just get people to learn more about it, uh, I think we'd get a bunch of prairie supporters pretty quickly. Yeah, I think so too. That's great. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we want to end with yeah. one, one last question for you. Okay. Uh, Chris, what's your coolest prairie fact? Uh, hmm. You know, I think the one that I talk about a lot, and it, it relates to the square meter project. So on the square meter project, I said I have I found 113 species. I photographed 113 species. The most abundant group of species that I photographed was flies. Oh, really? Which I think would surprise most people yeah. that it wasn't bees or it wasn't flowers beetles or something. It wasn't or, beetles, yeah. but it was flies. Mm-hmm. And in North America, mm-hmm. flies are the most diverse group of species that we have. Oh, yeah. of, of, of the insects, at least, of the arthropods, of the invertebrates. Um, there in North America, there are 61,000 species of flies. <laughs> yeah, I thought it would be beetles. Well, Six, that was the fact so, that So globally, heard. globally, it's beetles yeah. because of the tropics. Uh, but in North America, flies. it's flies. That's cool. So how many flies can you name? Yeah, I think I can only give yeah, horse flies, and I think a lot of the names I know are even right. like incorrect. They're right. just house butterflies don't count, dragonflies don't count, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. so it's it's amazing to me that there are sixty one thousand, and we know so little about them. Oh yeah, right. Um, they're pollinators, they're scavengers, they're decomposers, they're parasites, they're parasitoids. They do all these things. Pollinators, I think I mentioned, but and there's sixty one thousand kinds. Mosquitoes are included in that because mosquitoes are a kind of fly. Um, and, but there's, you know, many, many kinds of mosquitoes. Yeah. So anyway, I, I would say that's something that fascinates me. And yeah. it's not strictly about prairies because flies can be in a lot of things, places other than prairies, but sure. yeah. 61,000 species of and flies. Tell your friends. Beautiful. You get a oh, microscope and you look at a fly. They're amazing. They're, they're gorgeous. Some of the, some of the, the robber flies, for example, predators mm-hmm. are amazing by themselves and watching them. You can watch them in a prairie. You can watch them hunt. They'll sit up on a perch and something will fly by and they'll zip out and catch it. They'll <laughs> knock it out of the air like a guided missile. And and then a few species of them are also mimics of other things. Oh, yeah. Some of them mimic bees, right? Right. They have like yellow so there's a robber stripes. fly that looks yeah. exactly like a bumblebee, yep. right? Yep. Which is such an amazing thing to think about because you think about pollinators going from flower to flower. They see bumblebees all the time. Bumblebees right. aren't going to hurt you. They're just right. going to be there and you have to work, work around them to get the pollen and nectar that you want, right? So you land on a flower, it's perfectly fine, and then bam, you get zapped by this bumblebee yeah. that comes out of nowhere and your life is over. <laughs> so evolution very quickly, remedying <laughs> a bit of that. That's right. So anyway, pay That's attention awesome. to flies. They're everywhere and they're really cool. That's fantastic. I mean, both of us clearly need to do that given that we couldn't name more or less a single <laughs> <Yeah>. fly. <so. laughs> well, awesome. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Yeah. It was very really fun. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It's fantastic. This has been... What the heck is resilience anyway? And we'll be back next week. Take care. Yeah.